0: Hello there, and welcome back to Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean, the podcast where we break down the movie American Splendor scene by scene, talk about Harvey Pekar, and discuss the joys and challenges of being professional cartoonists. I'm Josh Neufeld of
1: joshcomics.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com.
0: And today we are discussing episode 14 which uh, starts at minute 27, second 32, and ends four minutes and 54 seconds later at 32.26. It corresponds to chapter 8 of the DVD, which is titled Jelly Beans, Lentils, and Lent. And it starts with Harvey in the file room and ends with all four of the main characters playing Harvey and Toby
1: in the fake documentary setting. Yeah, this is like a major scene in the movie. It's kind of unexpected when it happens, and it's profound. I, I I don't think I've ever seen a movie do anything quite like this in this scene. Yeah, well, especially the second part of it. Especially the second part. So yeah. we'll, we'll talk about the first part, and then, and then we'll get into the second one. So this scene opens with a plaque. This is the Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center. And then a caption comes over in the comic book caption. It says, and the next thing... It's the 80s, dot, dot, dot. Uh, I wrote a note here saying how interesting the contrast between cinema demarcation and comic book captions. Like, they're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. But cinematically, that's how you might show a transitional moment. You know, like... A stop sign, you know, uh, a building, what it's called, you know, and and they wouldn't. In cinema, you don't have captions. Right. In comic books, you can. You know, yes, you could also show the same, draw the same plaque in a comic book. They'll sometimes use captions in movies for like, if you move to a new city, it'll be like, Cleveland, Ohio. You're right. Or six years later, but not with a box and hand lettered like like a comic book caption. Exactly. So I just thought that was interesting. It's like a double caption in a weird way, Mm -hmm. but from the two different kind of sources, you know. The camera enters the filing room of Harvey and pans across Picar's desk, portrayed by the great Paul Giamatti, as usual. And uh, there's another moment where it says eight comics later, just to show that he's been now been producing American Splendor, the comic book, and it's eight issues later, eight comics. But as we we discovered, that would be eight years because he was only producing one comic a year, right?
0: Right. So I I had a question about that. Would you, in your mind, would that mean issue number nine? Because we had basically seen this first issue. So eight issues later would be number nine. I took it as as issue issue number
1: eight. But you're right. I think because part of the scene, the source material was from a story in issue number nine, that it might actually be the ninth issue. So that would be 1984. So just just to place us, we're either in 83 or 84. Right. And you see Harvey and it's like this montage of him being frustrated and disgruntled and writing and writing and writing. And he's always just seems to be upset, even though he's creating. And I Mm -hmm. guess a lot of creation comes from upset in a lot of, you know, ways. And he's also uh, there's kind of like a voiceover and he's upset because he's being praised for his comics, but he can't make a living at it, which I think a lot of cartoonists uh, share the same uh, frustrations. We cut to Harvey Picar in bed as he wakes up from a nightmare and says, I got a job, which is actually one of my favorite moments in the movie. Like <laughs> later on, I actually use that as the linchpin for my keynote at uh, the Baltimore Comic Con, the Harvey Awards, the last Harvey Awards that was presented at Baltimore Comic Con. And those are named after Harvey Picar, right? No, 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 What? No, no sorry. What? The? Yeah. What a travesty. <laughs> there's no other Harvey's in comics. <laughs> actually, there's one other. <laughs> what? <laughs>
0: Harvey so, Ditterman, Harvey that's Firestein.
1: It. That's right, Harvey <laughs> Firestein. Um, you know that would be an interesting. What would the Picar Award be? It would be for authenticity, disgruntlement, disgruntlement, <laughs> and authenticity. <laughs> so anyway, we he he wakes up from a nightmare and says, "I got a job," and then we cut back to him at his desk at his office in filing. You know the filing world where he's writing those words into his comic script. "I got a job" next to a stick figure. Uh, and we pull back, uh, you know, as he's transmitting this uh, into one of his scripts, and the scene is interrupted by Toby Radloff, as portrayed by Judah Friedlander, who swings by and offers Harvey jelly beans. He's, uh, he also is dressed really nerdy, uh, his hair is slicked back, he's, he's got this bag around his shoulder that he uses uh, mainly for, uh, I guess, you know, uh, transporting files or whatever, but it's not the coolest look. Let's put it that way. you know. <laughs> uh, not that Harvey is, is you know, a knight in shining a arena. A of, uh, of right. style. Of style. Yeah. So anyway... So uh, Toby, yeah, he offers him the, the jelly yeah. beans. And he and he also, Toby appears to have autism. He speaks in a very stilted and deliberate manner. And uh, like I said, he looks like your classic nerd. He presents the jelly beans and recommends the pina colada. He says... They're excellent and very authentic tasting. Perhaps Toby is complimenting Picar in some way by comparing him to the pina colada jelly beans because, you know, he recognizes Harvey's excellence and authenticity. But anyway, so Picar asks Toby if if you can eat lentils during Lent, which is, a, is an odd transition in the same scene because it goes from jelly beans to lentils. I guess that's the one little kind of leap you can make, like, well, I don't understand he, because Toby had said that he gave up sweets for Lent, so that oh, means that's it's, what it was. it's the period of Lent. So he gives up sweets for Lent, and it's the period which of Lent. is
0: the period right before Easter. I think it's like a month before
1: Easter. Okay, okay, and that's what generates the the query where. Um, uh, well, actually, I want to make another note. The, this scene is derived from that issue number nine, American Splendor in nineteen eighty four. The story is called Lentils and Lent. Uh, it's actually just a one page story. Anyway, Toby says he'll confirm the lentil query with his nun, Sister Mary Fred, and Harvey wonders if she's cute, and Toby reminds Harvey that nuns don't date. They have a higher calling, and Toby suggests that maybe Harvey consider a higher calling, you know, stop thinking about yourself all the time kind of thing. Oh, burn. It's it's a good burn that Toby, you know, uh, flexes upon Harvey uh, as he pulls out a bunch of jelly beans from the jelly bean bag. And then someone yells "Cut!" Yeah, and it gets really meta at this point uh, in the scene. But let's discuss this part first, and then we'll cut. Yeah,
0: because otherwise my brain is just too is going to
1: explode right. with right. all of this.
0: So yeah, let's stick to this first part first, and then we'll get to the second part. Yeah, great recap. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I that I remarked on was this um portrayal of harvey writing you know the writer Mm -hmm. and we've seen it earlier we've seen him frustrated and giving up and then we've seen him inspired writing all night and now he's settled into kind of his writing routine which apparently is Propping his legs up on the desk and writing on a piece of paper on his pants, and
1: it's torture. It's torture <laughs> it's for torture.
0: him. But you know, this this is always an issue in movies, and I guess comics too. But it's so often done in movies is sort of showing the creative process, right. whether it's a composer or a artist or a writer. It's sort of like you're you're. It's a, it's a very Cliched yes. sort of scene, but everyone has to
1: do it because it's. How else do you when show these happen? things? Like, yeah, when you're when you're at what at what point are you quote creating? Right, and why? And I and, thought that and was no interesting. No matter how you show it, sorry,
0: no matter how you show it, it's not interesting <laughs> because it's the result that's interesting. How but do you make the it process with, yeah. of sitting and working on something, especially something internal like right. comics or write prose, novels, right. poetry, whatever, it's it it comes out in the expression of it later. It's right. not not the process of it you know and
1: in this case at least uh what harvey does is he observes he listens he mm-hmm. partakes in conversations and then he translates that into his comics so you know like even the little thing like this lentils and lent thing that was from the comic that got into the movie but then the movie is showing how later on it would be in the comic right you know right so it was actually, giving you a
0: clue that that will end, end and up now later. to be yeah.
1: persnickety this is only he's only done eight issues he's writing the ninth issue because this would be taking the the lentil right. conversation but of course for the ninth issue as you
0: mentioned in the in the story in american splendor number nine lentils and lent illustrated by sean carroll it's actually a completely different scene like it, it doesn't sure. involve toby's nun and and it's more about just sort of trying harvey's quizzing toby on what the rules of catholic liturgy or whatever the, so the term is
1: was there a comic where Toby talks about his nun Mary Fred I don't remember one okay. specifically but there could
0: quite possibly have been okay. and by the way the name Mary Fred I looked that up because I, I seem to recall from other pop culture that there is sort of this humorous tradition where there are nuns who take on male names as their like second mm. name and so my guess is that she was named after St. Frederick Okay. Um, who was like a 10th century bishop who was canonized because he was a martyr. Right. And he's the patron saint of the deaf for whatever whatever that might mean. So hmm. I guess she was Mary Frederick and then is just known familiarly as Mary, Mary Fred, Fred, Sister Mary Fred. Right. But one thing I did, uh, just to get back to the, um, the writing scene, because I... As it is, as we've established, it's it's cliche and it's hard to uh, portray those kinds of things. But they, I like the way they did it. That they sort of stuck on one place and had Harvey uh, Paul Giamatti moving around. And sometimes he was writing with his legs propped up on the piece of paper that poked through and you know onto his legs. And sometimes he's standing over his desk and right. looking down. And sometimes he's pacing. But I like that in between each moment, each jump cut, there was kind of like the sound of a slide in a slide carousel going click and then it would go fade to black and come back up on the new scene it was kind of a clever transitional moment interesting that they used like an old-fashioned idea like a slide carousel um, but i was reading in the script that they were intending that as an homage to harvey's silent panels his use of silent panels in a lot of his comics oh. which i guess really is kind of a a thing that he utilized maybe more than Other people had done up to that point, right? Um, And it really is a big feature of a lot of his comics. And some of my favorite comics of his use silent panels really effectively. But you're saying Harvey, and I. I, Uh, This goes back to the question of of whether it's Harvey or whether it's the artist. artist. But there definitely were scripts that I did where he specifically left panels silent. So at least when it came to me um he was specific about that you don't remember uh, scripts like that from the ones you worked on I with don't him?
1: remember that but it's also possible he wrote in you know a silent panel yeah. or a pause or a, a transitional moment or something like that you know um there's another comic that you you pulled up that's in the scene that was it that I got a job the working man's nightmare yeah, so that was from
0: the the little cutaway moment where where he talks about how as much as he's frustrated that he doesn't make a living on his work and he does find this commercial I mean he, he achie- has achieved critical success but not commercial success. Right. Which as you said is, you know, uh, true for a lot of artists. Right. Um that wait, I lost my train of thought.
1: Well, just the... I mean, while you're thinking of the uh, what you were saying, I'm looking at the comic it's derived from, which is two pages, The Working Man's Nightmare, illustrated yes. by Jerry or is it Gary Shamray? I think Jerry. Jerry. And it's drawn like a dream sequence, number one. Because yes. it's just all over the place, design-wise. And it, and it starts off with two silent panels. Right. Which is so odd, and it starts with, wait a minute, what do I do for a living? Mm-hmm. Which is like, who asked the question, and like, why is he even... But he starts to wrestle with this thing, yeah. and it's used differently in the movie, and there is a moment where he's sleeping in bed and wakes up. Right. But so he... basically, the scene in the movie is like the last two panels of this story. Right, where he's wrestling with, like, guess, his understanding of what it is he does for a living and in his life.
0: Yeah, I mean, so in the comic from American Splendor number six, 1981, he, it shows this sort of bucolic scene of him in a park or, mm-hmm. you know, some kind of country setting where he's with some friends and they all seem to be enjoying each other's company and then he says goodbye and as he's walking away by himself, he all of a sudden freaks out because he can't remember what he does for a living mm-hmm. and he's like looking at himself like, I, I seem to be an okay, like my clothes are normal mm-hmm. and I seem well fed and healthy or whatever but I don't know what I do I and I've got to wake up. I, this is, I can't, I can't take this. I have to wake up. And he's trying all these different ways to wake himself
1: up. Existential crisis. Yeah. Mm. But also
0: those bizarre dreams where you know that you're dreaming, but you can't wake yourself Mm -hmm. out of that dream. And then he finally does at the end with this giant sound effect pop. Mm -hmm. And then we see that he uh, is awake. But it definitely doesn't. Resolve in quite the same way that in the movie does, where he's just like, "I got a job, I got a
1: job, well, I got a job." And I feel like it, it's missing a page, to be honest. I feel like it, he wakes up, and what has he resolved? That like, did he wake up into a nightmare? Is he asleep? Like, well, I it's think very the title odd. gives the gives it away a little bit by it being called "Working Man's
0: Nightmare." Right, like just that that is you know, you're a working man and your nightmare is that you can't remember what it is that you actually do, you know, and it's very much like a blue collar kind of thing. Like if you have a job, it doesn't matter what your job is. It's like, you've got security, you've got stability and you, you have a place in the world. Like you you are a, you know, fulfilling a, you're a cog in that machine and everybody needs to be part of that machine.
1: And now that he's tasted, you know autonomy of some sorts, even though he collaborates with artists, you know, to draw his stories. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's a character now. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he went from a guy who files, you know, things away and is invisible no. to being visible. You know, right through his comics. Right. So I can I could understand you know having a midlife crisis of sorts. Mm-hmm. Although how old is he at this point? In eighty four or I think forty five. Oh, okay, that's a good yeah. time for a midlife crisis. Yeah, it's good you know? appropriate time. <laughs> <laughs> so so I I can understand like how. The frustration of that and and then i wonder if eight issues in you know you start to realize your trends right when you're writing and drawing and or you know you're getting your comic you're putting something out there and you're a character now i wonder and it's not addressed in in the movie and i never asked harvey this but like what was it like to be writing a harvey character is it was it always just like this is what happened you know, or did he start to realize there were certain tenets, mm-hmm. you know, to Harvey Peacock. Right. And it's do like writing you a Bible that? of
0: a character. Yeah,
1: exactly. Do you repeat that? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, when Har- I love it when Harvey does that, you know, that kind of a thing. Or who knows, you know, like like was he wrestling with that at all?
0: Yeah. Well, you have to think I mean, I always tell this to my students or when I talk to people about writing autobiocomics, that you need to have enough distance from yourself as a character to be able to write about the full range of emotions and possibilities mm-hmm. and be able to make fun of yourself and be able to talk about difficult things with enough distance that, mm-hmm. that you can that you have the perspective of a storyteller as mm-hmm. opposed to someone who's like trapped in their own life right. and has no uh, insight into their own life. Right. So and it takes some work to be able to do that. like you know you maybe need to have gone to some therapy to do that. But I think that clearly Harvey had that insight and had that ability to at least, not not have uh, so much ego that he couldn't show his dark side because yeah I that's mean, evident right from the beginning
1: and you could tell early on in his comics he liked a good joke or he liked mm-hmm. to kind of play with it a little bit yeah. or be his version of what was funny you know like it's I, exactly
0: his version of what yeah was as you funny. Say, I
1: think he 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 sometimes comes off as a frustrated comedian in mm-hmm. some ways you know like, definitely it's a very long stand up joke yeah some yes. of these stories but yeah. it's funny that you say that about. Being able to have that distance. Because I always feel like when I've done comics of my own, I feel I'm culpable to, you know, what happened. Mm-hmm. And the only thing you might be able to do is, like, truncate some some aspects of time. But it still has to happen the way it happened, sure. you know? Yeah. And I always felt like my Billy Dogma comics, or even currently some of my Red Hook stuff, mm-hmm. which is a, little, a lot more fictional. But I felt that there's a, more of an emotional truth yes. to the Billy Dogma stuff. Sure. versus the actual autobio stuff yeah, because it, it's more factual. And I think mm-hmm. fact almost gets in the way of emotion sometimes, you know? Right.
0: It's that balance with, with autobio or memoir where you need to, you need the reader to believe that this is true, mm-hmm. that, that you're really the person you say you are and that, you know, your job is the job it is and your family situation is the situation it is. But then you also need the reader to give you enough slack for you to, to admit that you're telling stories, you Mm -hmm. know, and that you're editing and you're, you're maybe consolidating events or
1: leaving some things out to make other points stronger. Because of scrutiny. I think that a reader, We'll look at an comic versus a fictional comic mm-hmm. and they'll scrutinize, you know, what they feel is real. Yeah. You know, and if you can't keep it real throughout. Yeah. It'll it'll take them out of the story earlier than if they were reading fiction. Right. You know, And there's something about thinking that something actually
0: happened and that this person experienced this that changes your relationship to a story Mm -hmm. and your whole approach to like what kind of story am I listening to now am I is this am I in a documentary audience mode or am I in a fantasy having fun anything goes fictional mode you know it, it almost requires the reader to have a different state of emotional being at that moment Mm -hmm. investment you know attachment uh, i don't have an investment because you can like both equally but you kind of
1: just need to be in the right mood you know that's true that's true and i do think the difference between reading like harvey picar and superman let's say is you know you feel like a voyeur in harvey picar's story where you feel like you could be superman Mm. It's the Superman story. Oh, huh, that's interesting. You know, not saying you can lift a car and fly around, you right. know, but, you know, you can dream. Whereas so with Harvey, you're just, it's, it, you're watching someone's life. Because he's so specific? Because he is such a distinct pers- persona? Well, that, but I mean, you can have a unique persona in fiction, you mm-hmm. know, and and, but I think it's more open to be able to be related, relatable. Hmm. to that now you could read harvey and, and if you lived in ohio or you were a filing clerk you know it'd be a little closer to you you could right. identify to that but it's still you're just a voyeur uh more so in reading uh someone's autobiocomic versus again trying to identify with a made-up character that has realistic aspects hopefully you know uh written into it mm-hmm. so you can relate but it's more it's more wide open in that way it's interesting you know? i guess i wouldn't necessarily have expressed it
0: that same way but I can see where you're going with that. Mm. I need to ponder that further. I think you need to think about that. Yeah, I Josh. need I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I should take a time out. So, what oh, can I just say well, one other yep. thing? Um, the critical success versus the commercial success thing. Right. I always have appreciated that in, in one hand, that was always a mantra of Harvey's. Like, it was it was a constant thread throughout his life. When I knew him in his comics, you know, in the movies, whatever, was that he never was making enough money. He was never making enough bread. It was always, like, month to month. And I totally relate to that. I related to that when I was in my 20s. I still relate to that now. Me too. It's It's life, you know. It's like, it's not easy street just because you happen to be well-known or famous or whatever, depending on what field you're in. And comics, at least indie comics, it's not that's not the world where you're, you know, coasting once you've been on the David Letterman show a couple of times. And I guess I always felt bad for Harvey that that was true because he was someone that was older than me and I was aspiring to be someone like him. And here he was advertising that, no, you know, you're going to have to keep working just as hard or you're hustling all the time. But on the other hand, I appreciated that he was honest about that and didn't sugarcoat it and try to pretend that everything was great once you were quote unquote famous. Well,
1: he, I mean, the first, I'm sure you have the same thing that happened to you but i think the first real life comic person that you knew made comics was stan lee because it was always stan lee presents and his name was everywhere in the marvel comics right? sure and then the f- rip stan lee by the way rest in peace but the first comic book writer i ever saw was harvey picar and david letterman and now for the first time i was seeing what one looked like <laughs> <laughs> and it was harvey you know and i remember coming on tv and i had yeah. this big giant like Did you know who he was at that point? I definitely knew about American Splendor because I'd been reading it, you know, occasionally. So you were ahead of me in that way? Yeah, I was going to this store called uh, Soho Zat Uh that sold American Splendor and Yummy Fur by Chester Brown and alternative comics and whatnot. And then there was Forbidden Planet and St. Mark's Comics and stuff like that. Sure. So I would uh, go there for the Marvels and DCs, but come out with some some indie stuff, right? And then one day I, you know, I guess I was David Letterman, there was a commercial or something, and it said that that night picar was going to be going to be uh one of the guests and i had this giant vcr and i remember like you know loading up the tape and everything and you know and and actually recording it while watching it and it was an odd experience like yeah. just watching harvey on letterman the way he behaved and acted well let's not get ahead of ourselves we won't get ahead of, yeah, yeah but i i we can talk more about that later yeah and why did I bring that but up? Just
0: because that was the first uh, actual comic book writer that you ever... I,
1: I guess. And and yeah, and, and just talking about how like, yeah, this is the first real yeah. person, you know. And again, of course, it was a guy who wrote about himself, right. you know, which is, was the rare kind of comic book I would read, you know. See, I'm continually amazed that you were that far ahead of me, because
0: that would have been when we were in high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was not reading any alternative stuff
1: at that point even right. though
0: I had had that earlier state phase of life where I'd been reading my dad's underground comics and by European the, comics I never read European the European comics stuff. right you were reading Tintin Tin and True. Asterix and True. stuff which was like you I know. still feel like at, at heart though those are genre comics you yeah know?
1: no they're young adult you yeah know? they're for kids yeah
0: you know I get it so I, I'm envious of you of our past selves, that mm. you you were ahead of me in that way. Because you were, for me, it was a big deal when I first was exposed to American Splendor or alternative comics, was just getting my head wrapped around that you could make comics about anything, that they yeah. didn't have to be, you know, superheroes, funny animals, or right. gag comics. Right. and right. And that took some tra- some processing, and mm-hmm. you were already there, so... And now you do that yeah, more than I. that's one point for
1: you. Yeah, but you drew Har- uh, a story for Harvey before I did. so.
0: Oh, yeah, so I,
1: I win. You win. Okay. Uh, so, cutting back to the cut, where the jelly beans, right? So, Paul Giamatti portraying Harvey Picar digs into a bag of jelly beans, and then we hear cut, and we cut uh, the close up of the jelly beans as we pull back. We see Paul Giamatti in front of a camera filming the scene. The movie enters that weird white zone again, right? Mm hmm. The we've fake documentary setting, HD. Yeah. Yes. And this is where the movie gets meta. Totally. A profound moment in the movie where semi autobiographical fiction mashes up with reality as the real Harvey and the real Toby crossover with giamatti and friedlander uh real harvey and real toby discuss jelly beans and loneliness and how they deal with loneliness which was weird yeah and i'll tell you why so just to recap we get the giamatti jelly beans the yell cut he walks past the real harvey and real toby and goes over and sits down next to friedlander or, or friedlander comes up is actually actually standing with. Freeliner standing next to Toby at the time, which is right. like, what is going on? Yeah. I, I'm inside a, a movie inside a movie type yeah. thing, right? It's like you're seeing in two dimensions at the same time. Yeah, like and, and you're Earth wondering too at the same time. Is this a time. mistake? Did it was right. was this like is this supposed to be a DVD extra? Like what is happening? <laughs> right. You know? It's so odd. It's and really narratively odd. it's odd. Yeah. Like, why is this in the movie? Yeah, you know? It's and it's it becomes brilliant. this gem, you mm-hmm. know, this gem moment. And I love. Uh, And then they start talking about, you know, jelly beans. So you saw the Freelander version of that scene. Right. And now you get to see like kind of like a revisit of that idea. Like, what about these jelly beans? And Harvey's talking to, you know, Toby about this. And what's so odd to me is that we get to kind of have that moment again with the real, you know, people. But then the only thing I'm thinking at that moment is I'm trying to like embrace the idea that, you know, this is supposed to be in the movie now. And even though it's a weird narrative quirk, you know, a a veering, um, all I could think about is what is up with Toby Radloff's interior life? Like, what does that, what does he live? (laughs) And I'm very, I'm an empathetic person as you are. And all I could think about is he must be lonely. And the next thing he talks about is loneliness, Mm -hmm. which almost generates immediately for me, like, how weird that was. I was asking a question and it started right. to be answered. Yeah. You know? It's good filmmaking, right? It's it's incredible because you look at that guy and you go, I don't know. I, I suspect he's alone a lot. You know, yeah. and, and he probably is surrounded by the things he likes. Right. And they talk about that. You know, they talk about what do you do when you're alone? Right. I watch movies, I read a lot, yeah. you know, listen to music, you know, that I- kind of stuff. Eat jelly beans. Right. If you read the comics, you know they
0: have established Toby as this character who lives with his mother in this uh, ethnic ghetto, as it's always um, mm-hmm. called by Harvey. It's like a Catholic neighborhood and mm-hmm. in a rundown part of Cleveland. And but that's not in the movie. I don't know if it comes in later when they're going to go see Revenge of the Nerds. But again, I, we don't want to get ahead yeah. of ourselves. I
1: don't think so. I think he just literally appears. Yeah. And he talks right. weird. This is only
0: the second time we've met him.
1: And it's and yeah, he's had one line before about wanting to check out Harvey's comic right. you know, eight years ago. Yeah. You know, the first issue of American Splendor. And now eight years later, you know, he's still working at the job. And and it's it's bizarre, you know? Um Just one thing mm-hmm. just to throw in there is
0: that in the original script there was actually another little Harvey monologue after he does the intro where he talks about oh it's eight comics later and Mm -hmm. i've got critical success and uh, all the people who tell you what to like like my stuff but i still have to work so there's this other little monologue that he says after the i got a job thing Mm -hmm. where he says so to stave off desperation and feelings of uselessness i resigned myself to a menial existence but hey maybe the guy who's had a happy life feels worse just before he dies than the guy who had a sad one or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe I just needed a woman.
1: Wow. Wow. I mean, and that's where this is kind of leading because exactly. he's alone. Yeah. And and even making a joke about, is Sister Mary Fred cute? Right. You know, and kind of pissing off Toby. Mm-hmm. He's like, that's not what she does, you know. And maybe you should think about a higher purpose, yeah. you know. And I do think, ultimately, his higher purpose was the creation of american splendor and right and wrestling and and you know d- writing about himself but around it, b- about his community and, and jazz and everything else that he loved you but know this movie is is a
0: romantic comedy essentially <laughs> right and so it's setting up the romance between True. him and joyce which is to come which is to come right but uh the other thing that i did want to just talk about was Judah Friedlander. Yeah, before we get into this further into the scene, because he's he's so great in this role, and like, like you said, when you actually see the real Toby. It confirms his performance. Oh my God, this guy wasn't just doing some weird pastiche of a human being. Like he's actually more normal than the actual dude. And it's especially funny because and I think you can speak on this more than I can, but the actual actor of Judah Friedlander could not be more different in appearance and demeanor (laughs) than the character he plays. Like he's known for his oversized glasses and his trucker hat and his general unkempt appearance. Long
1: bushy hair. Yeah. So
0: like the fact that he just transformed himself for this role and actually i do have to mention that he was nominated for best supporting actor in this movie for playing that role for the independent spirit awards so others recognized him
1: yeah it's weird like i had never heard of him before the movie and i you know obviously went on to work on 30 rock for what like eight seasons or something like that Mm -hmm. And he does stand up he does stand up and i listened to his most recent album which is really good about america Huh. And, you know, he continues to work, you yeah. know, and I did uh, see him at a, uh, at a party, a, a, a non-related, you know, to this movie party. Like, I think it was like one of Jonathan Ames' board to death parties. Oh, cool. And it's funny. He recognized me. <laughs> he came up to me. He's like, you're Dean Aspiel That's awesome. And I thought awesome. that was so weird, yeah. you know, like. So he's obviously a comics fan, too, and and, and I guess, you know, obviously a Picar fan, or else, you know, why would you do this? Well, if you're a stand-up comic, does that mean
0: you have to be a fan of comics as well? Like, just, is that that required? Like, because it's in the title. That's not funny. But Wait, what? That's not funny. What? (laughs)
1: That's not funny.
0: (laughs) I actually wasn't even sure if you got that I was making a joke, because you were so disappointed in me.
1: (laughs) if only these mics could show you what it sees (laughs) and not just what it hears and what it smells (laughs) so the other yeah totally weird
0: thing about this whole scene and like i still can't get my head around that they actually like scripted this and like thought this through is that on a meta level they 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 end that first part of the scene with the close-up of paul giamatti with the jelly beans in his hand Mm. and then they cut away from that same shot, and we see Paul Giamatti with the jelly beans. But they now are in a totally different set because the original set that they filmed it in, I believe, was actually the file room where Harvey worked. I believe they used the actual Cleveland Hospital as the set. Oh,
1: I didn't even think about that. And then
0: when they cut to this fake documentary white, you know background scene they've just sort of constructed this kind of like a shelf of it like got (laughs) a shelf there in a file cabinet so they're really just totally messing with you because it's like you're not supposed to believe that that actually was the set they were just filming at they've just created this construct so they can set the scene up where the real actor meets i mean where the real guy meets the actor both of them and not only
1: that but it's also messing with the idea of who is harvey picar yes which like, is now the, it's the making of a movie, Harvey Pekar. Right. Like, what is Harvey Pekar? Yes, that's exactly what I wanted to
0: get to, too, is that now there's this weird scene where Harvey is reciting lines that clearly have been fed to him. Because the director says, after he says cut, he says, next we're going to do, do the bakery scene, right. which is the very next scene in the movie. And then Harvey Pekar, the real Harvey Pekar, is like... Playing with Toby Radloff and is like bakery scene, bakery. Do you know anything about a bakery scene? (laughs) And then uh, Toby says something like, "Well, I, you know, I, I have a a, my scene is a bakery, but I don't think in the way that they mean." And they're doing this stupid banter back and forth, and you can tell that they've kind of been coerced into sure, doing this sure. and then i just get this general feeling that harvey the real harvey picar is like so tired at this <laughs> point and it gets back to your point about how he has to construct this this character of yeah. harvey picar yeah. and he's had to play it on david letterman and he got sick of that as we will see later on and now here he is again roped into kind of playing this pastiche of himself for the purpose of this fake documentary thing and then we get into the whole scene
1: the whole discussion of loneliness which is really profound. It is profound again yeah. almost unearned except you look at Toby and yes. that's the first question you exactly. think of. Exactly. You know, and then of course it's about uh, Toby asked Harvey the question. Right. But then he doesn't let him answer. He doesn't let him
0: answer. (laughs) He lists the things that Harvey does. He says, I know you watch TV, you read, you listen to your jazz records, which sounds so condescending. I know. Um, (laughs) You write and you draw your little stick Stick (laughs) figures. I know. (laughs) And you can see
1: Harvey just slumps, you know, like, I'm not even going to bother trying to defend this. It's almost like he met his match in Toby. Yeah, totally. He could fight and banter and, you know, with everybody else. When he came to Toby, it was almost like a human Quailu that allowed him to chill out. (laughs) You know but also like because of his
0: condition, whatever it is, it's like
1: whatever Harvey would say would just bounce off of Toby, you know, and come back at him. But Paul Giamatti does a really cool thing uh with his version of Harvey responding to Toby is to treat him like just like anybody else, number one, as as did Harvey. Yeah. Yeah. But also when he's when Toby's looking away, he's kind of smiling as he he enjoys this guy. He likes this guy. Oh yeah, totally. And you you can see
0: when he in the first part of the scene when he gets the jelly beans and eats them he, so he he gets this idea of kind of pranking him about the lentils and lent thing mm-hmm. and exactly the way that Paul Giamatti's face changes as and he gets less depressed he's yes. like ah I, that little puckish quality of him yes. gets to come out so then when this other scene is playing out in the fake documentary the they, meta, have, yeah. they have Paul Giamatti and Judah Friedlander go and sit on those little director's chairs in the background yeah. and just observe what's
1: going on and again you see and it's more authentic Yes, G- as uh, Freelanders like taking off uh, a hat or something, or yeah. and his hair gets messed up. You you see Giamatti li- like just enjoying this parlay, yes, watching, observing like hard, the real Harvey and the real to Toby, last. you know, discussing, having conversation, and he's just completely enjoying it. And it's just this beautiful moment again, out of nowhere. It feels like mm-hmm. you know, and you feel like you've just stepped out of the movie into another movie, yeah, and you almost want to stay there. Right. Hang out there for a while. Yeah. You know? Well, it is. It, it does remind me of those. Did you used to read Justice League at all back yeah. in the 80s?
0: So, do you remember like every year there would be this team up of the Justice Society and the Justice yeah. League, and they would have the Earth, they'd have some totally like fake plot device that would be like the earth one and earth two are now you know meeting to fight a common villain right and there would be like the earth one superman who's like older no the earth earth one superman is our current superman right and the earth two superman was like the original superman who was older and had gray hair and his s on his costume was a little different and and they would get together and like talk shop and the earth one batman earth two batman same thing and i loved those comics Uh they were they were so strange because i had read a lot of those golden age dc comics back in the day right In reruns, obviously. And uh, now it was like... It was this weird meta thing where DC, the company, was kind of admitting that they had this weird time issue because all their heroes had been around for so long and should be really old, but Mm -hmm. they just stayed the same age. So they made these two different universes and blah, blah, blah. So this has that same quality of just like, it's it's an annual or, you know, it's something we just have to enjoy and then we're going to go back to our normal, you know, issue next episode. But again, I I would love to
1: talk to the filmmakers like, how did they arrive at this? And it's in the script so it's not like it was just no they thought about it and constructed it i would love to know how the the filmmakers came up with this idea and i know it basically sets up that montage sequence later on Mm -hmm. with the who am i harvey you know part of the movie so you think without
0: this scene that that scene later on and again no spoilers Mm -hmm. wouldn't have worked as
1: well i think it was totally would have worked as well but i think it's it's allowing you to be open more to it later on you know. Because up to this
0: point, whenever they've gone to these this white set, it's been in the context of this documentary with the real right. Robbie P. Car talking right. outside of the narrative of the film.
1: And part of the movie is about iteration.
0: Right. You know? Yeah. So So just two other things that, you know, I felt like I I had notes about so I needed to mention. One is that this whole thing with toby and his extreme nerdiness and it, that way of talking but also his way of dressing with the sweater vest and mm-hmm. the digital watch and all that was i guess more of a of a brave statement of a kind back then uh even even in early 2000s than it is now but definitely in the 80s when like if you proclaimed yourself a nerd you were opening yourself up to if, if you just didn't even like i was basically a nerd in high school but at least i could pretend not to be and i could play sports and i Tried to dress a little bit more fashionably or whatever, but in, in my heart, I was a nerd because if I had just said, "Yeah, I'm a nerd," like I would have been beaten up like three times a day. Well, and today is made a, fun a of badge it. of honor. Yeah, like now everybody's
1: a nerd. It's like a whole nerd culture. It's a nerd culture, but back then you were open to ridicule, being beaten up. Yeah, you know. And in a way, Toby was wearing that badge proudly. Yeah. In fact, wasn't he? Well, that's a scene later on yeah. which we won't get because into. An MTV he, star. That's right.
0: But the other thing is that that scene where Harvey the real Harvey and the real Toby are kind of running through this little monologue together that is sort of half you know improv and half prompted by the directors and Harvey just seems so tired of the whole thing, at least the way I was reading it, reminded me of this really strange thing that happened to me maybe five years ago, back when AD, my book on Hurricane Katrina, had been translated into French. And so I had been invited out to Angoulême, to the comics festival out in France, which is like one of the world's oldest comics festivals and something I'd always been, you know, uh, Uh, anxious to to go to and there i i I got to go so it was really exciting um and i was on a uh, panel uh, about nonfiction comics with joe sacco Mm. who's my almost my all-time hero you know the comics journalist and this iranian cartoonist named maya neastani who had done a book called um uh, you know about his experiences, sort of being forced out of Iran because of his cartooning and having to escape and becoming an exile in France. And it, so it was this very serious panel, and it was in one of the main Angoulême panel places, and it was treated very seriously. And there were great questions from the audience, and it was it was an academic, serious-minded approach to thinking about comics in a serious way. Boring. <laughs> and obviously I was super excited to be on the same stage as Joe Sacco and getting to like just rub elbows with him and he was treating me like you know a colleague which was awesome so afterwards we were hanging out in the green room and there was this photographer who had been hired by Angoulême to take photos of all the panel participants and he was French also um, so I thought he'd be cool. That, but it turned out that he just wanted us to pose in all these really ridiculous ways, like, like jumping up and down and extending our arms like superheroes and pretending we were shooting webs Ugh. and jumping into each other's arms and all of this really That's stupid awful. stuff. And all of us were just kind of like looking at each other and basically just shrugged our shoulders and agreed to do all of this It's like the stuff. visual version of Zap pow boom yeah exactly and i would have expected better in france you know and at the festival
1: it was french josh (laughs) you were in france
0: um but uh yeah it was just so strange and i also was kind of amazed that joe sacco stood for it like he didn't just be like no that's that's you know harvey, my, wouldn't, have harvey wouldn't have stood for that Harvey wouldn't have stood for that yeah so because he caved i caved and i suppose the iranian guy just sort of did whatever everyone he was else in, he in exile <laughs> yeah he was like i he don't want to get just, kicked out that's right <laughs> i'm not gonna piss anyone off uh, but it was it was strange and i actually never even saw those photos um maybe they didn't end up using them because when they saw them they're like this is not really appropriate for the subject matter <laughs> but anyway that kind of took me back to that yeah, scene that's funny Well, anything else um, on this? I feel like that was so, such good stuff that we kind of,
1: our brains need to recuperate and ponder this a little bit more. I do think people who are listening to this podcast, like this is in particular a scene that just has to be viewed and, you know, absorbed by the viewer in their own terms because it's just kind of an incredible moment and it's a milestone moment. It is. In the movie, it's crucial, it's critical. It kind of, Serves so many different things at the same time, even though it's about jelly beans and loneliness.
0: Yeah, totally
1: true. And it also
0: enhances... The subject matter Mm -hmm. like it doesn't just it's not just in the service of american splendor the comic book it has achieved its own level as an artistic expression this film with that scene kudos to the filmmakers yeah kudos to the filmmakers it's to me what a great collaboration you know results in Where, where you sort of have this subject matter that you're using to uh to adapt into a film and then you are bringing your own sensibility and your own creativity to it and you're throwing in these great actors and the actual characters into the mix and then you end up with a scene like this it's magic it's just it's unto itself 100 percent agreement from me so um, we'll wrap up this episode uh but remember that you can visit us at scenebyscenepodcast.com and scenebyscene scene on facebook where you can subscribe download past episodes read up on the show check out our work including all things Harvey Picar, and join the discussion. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Give us five stars. That always helps us out. Uh, and until next time, when we'll be discussing episode number 15, this is Josh Newfeld And Dean Haspiel. With Scene by Scene with Josh and
1: Dean. Josh, what does five stars get us?
0: Uh, I think free hamburger at McDonald's. Burger King. Oh, right. Not Wendy's.